Jesus, we just acknowledge in this place that your name is powerful. And as we enter your sacred presence in this space, I just want to give us just a space just to breathe and slow down. Often we come in to worship and we're frazzled. Maybe you got in a fight with your spouse on the way here, had an argument with a child. Maybe you're just carrying the stress of the week, anxieties about the future. Let's just slow down for a second in Jesus' presence. He is peace. He's a gentle father. And he wants to restore and cleanse and calm us. Slow down for a second. Allow the peace of his presence just to be in your mind and in your physical body and in your heart. The scriptures say that Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, cleanses us from the inside out. He convicts us of sin. He orients our mind so that it's not darkened by the presence of the world, but it's animated by the light of his presence. Right? He's given us the scriptures so that we can know the way forward. We can know truth in a world that has fallen and broken. And God, we ask that you would come today. Bring peace, Lord. Just pray you bring calm. Bring calm to us, God. Jesus, we want to be cleansed by you. We want to be washed. In this space, God, we say that you are king, that you are Lord, that you are master. And we ask, God, that our lives would be shaped by you, Jesus. We would conform to your kingdom, not our culture. We would be an alternative community that witnesses to your eternal kingdom. Not the present moment, not the political fads, not American culture, but you, Jesus, and you alone shape our hearts and our minds that we would conform to your kingdom in this place, in this time, for your glory. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to whom be all glory and honor and praise forevermore, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, it's good to, to hang out. Um, now, if you're a kid, hold on one second. Hey, Mike. Um, if you are a kid and you're in this place, if you were here last week, I asked you guys a question. How would you paint that ceiling? Do you remember this? And you guys had all kinds of ideas. This is what we use to paint that ceiling. And we actually have some pictures. I, I have a couple of pictures that I took that I wanted you guys to see. So we had to scrape that whole ceiling. So literally there was plastic everywhere covering this whole space. Maybe there's another one. One more. And see, they used that big thing to get up to the ceiling. It was an adventure. But I just want to say this because we have one more project and that's why this is still here. So I just want to make something really clear. This is not a jungle gym. I know it looks just like one. This is actually adult Legos. So adults will come in here. They will build with this so they can do projects. Let us not climb on it, swing on it, at least not now, please, or after service. I would appreciate that. Adults, the same is true for you. <laughs> with that said, if you're a kid and want to hang out with other kids, uh, Camellia's over there. They would love to spend some time with you. 
Uh, last week we talked about sort of building the scaffolding. So we have a living, living demonstration. So you can always look at it throughout this sermon if you're bored and think about how God is scaffolding your life. And maybe we'll have someone move it around just to make it a dynamic illustration or not. All right, so we're in Judges. We're going through this large survey through the Old Testament. Uh, we are, I think, three or four weeks into Judges this week. Now, one of the things often we go to the Old Testament and we look for heroes. You know, you probably experienced this growing up in church, but often it's this thing of you read through, you see this person, and then you ask the question, how do I become like this person? But the truth is, that's not exactly the intent of the stories in the Old Testament all the time. More often than not, the heroes in the Old Testament that we look at are really broken people. And they're often there to operate as mirrors as much as what we should do and what we shouldn't. And what we're going to see today in the story of Samson is that Samson is not really someone we should emulate. Our story begins in this 13th chapter of Judges. And we're introduced to a couple uh, to whom an angel of the Lord appears in verse 3. And this angel comes to this couple and says, okay, you are going to have a child. However, the angel tells this woman that she must not drink alcohol or eat anything unclean, verse 4, or cut the child's hair because the son is, verse 5, to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of evil or Israel from the hands of the Philistines. God, I just pray that you would be with that child. Uh, you'd bring her or him just a sense of peace. It's hard to be a parent. So God, we just ask uh, that you would bring calm and peace. Thank you, Lord. Okay, a bit of context. So the angel has said to the mom, hey, do these things. Now, the angel is actually referring to number six. This is the Nazarite vow. Now, if we go back to number six, this is important because the vow was supposed to be basically a vow you would take uh, for special help during a crucial time. So you'd cut your hair or you'd not drink alcohol as a way of signaling to God, God, I'm taking this seriously. Please listen to me. Or you'd not touch a dead body. Not that this was like a super common thing, you know. <laughs> anyway, that was just going to make a weird joke. Okay. But the idea is you're going to adopt the practices of a priest and you're not going to be around dead bodies or touch them. And basically you're saying, hey, for this voluntary amount of time, for a specific amount of time, uh, I am taking this vow, God, answer my prayers. What's interesting at the beginning of chapter 13 is actually the angel is asking the woman on behalf of her future son to take the vow for him. This is important, right? So the son actually has no say in this vow, which is intended for the individual to take for themselves. Now, as the story unfolds, this woman gives birth to a boy and names him Samson. The child grows up. He's blessed by God, verse 24, verse 25. It says that God's spirit begins to work in him. And you have this sense as the story is building that we're, man, we are ready. The stage is set for this awesome leader, this awesome judge who's going to bring deliverance. Everyone is like, hallelujah, amen, the deliverer is coming. Instead, we receive the most flawed character in the entire book of Judges. Chapter 14 begins with, one day, Samson went down to Timnah and there saw a young Philistine woman. Verse 1. In returning home, he literally says to his parents, Have I seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines? Now get her for me as a wife. Okay. You know, sort of like, I don't know, the way it's translated, at least literally, it sort of has the appearance of caveman speech. Like, you know, like, have I seen a woman? You know, whatever. Okay. One of the things, right, in our cultural context, often we, like, there is some freedom to talk back to parents. It's like, there's some assumption in our culture, like, you can talk back a little bit. 
I mean, not a lot. Parents are like, lesser side, you know. You know, 20-somethings are like, farther along this line, you know. But the point is, in ancient Near Eastern culture, you don't really talk back to dad. Dad's word is final. And yet, Samson is like, get this woman for me as a wife. Right? He's not teachable. He's clearly really impulsive. And it's also important to note that he found a Philistine wife deep in Israelite territory, which is Timnah. And what this means, right, is that Israel and the Philistines are basically living together. Deep in Israelite territory, even though they worship different gods, they have different practices, there's lots of different differences that are now blending together in Israel. And this is really important because in every story up to this point, there's a basic pattern, right? If you've been attending and listening to these sermons, you know there's a simple cycle. Israel does what's right in their own eyes. Then what happens? They get into all kinds of a mess. Then they think, this is not cool. What do I do? I cry out to God. Then what does God do? Sends a deliverer. And he rescues the people and they experience a season of peace. What has not happened yet in this story? They have not cried out to God. Israel is basically in a season of totally unaware of their behavior, that they are just culturally accommodating to the Philistine worldview, right? They have completely adapted to the values and the gods of the Philistines, right? Like Samson himself, the Israelites are eager to move up in Philistine society, and obviously they're like, I'm marrying in to those values, and in this case, to those people all right, and as this cultural accommodation is played out in Samson's attempt to marry this Philistine woman, it also plays out in his disdain for his own Nazarite vow. The text says, right, when he's going to visit his bride-to-be in Timnah, a young lion came roaring towards him, and he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. Judges 14, 5 and 6. Now, as a Nazarite, right, he's not supposed to touch a dead animal. He can defend himself, but what he should do at that point is go straight to the tabernacle for cleansing, right? If he's at all serious about this vow on his life. But he's on the way to visit this woman that he desires. And Samson's desires always come first. On another visit, right, he's on his way to his bride-to-be and he sees this beehive that sort of I don't know, I don't know why the bees made their hive inside the lion carcass, but they do. And he goes up to it and he takes honey out of it and he eats it and then he shares it with his parents, making both of them unclean, but he doesn't even tell them. And it's these walks back and forth to Timnah that set the stage for a riddle he wants to tell at his wedding with his Philistine bride. So he stands up at the wedding event and he says, let me put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what is within the seven days of the, what it is in the seven days of the feast and find out, then I will give you 30 linen garments, 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. Now, Samson thinks he is super clever. He's like, they'll never get it. So he tells his bride-to-be and she says, cool and then tells her family. So it's this point, right? Samson, this impulsive, emotionally passion-driven individual, right? Stands up, tells the wedding, they answer it, and he could take it in stride, right? He could be like, oh, you guys, you got me. You know, you know trickery, you know, you shouldn't have been able to get that. Instead, what does he do? He goes and kills 30 Philistine men and gives the clothes to the bride's family. Now, this creates so much tension that the, his bride-to-be ends up marrying another man without Samson's knowledge. Samson finds out he's not happy, right? Again, driven by his passions. So what does he do? He catches 300 foxes. The humane society would be 
so mad. 300 foxes, turns them tail to tail, puts a torch between their tails, and then sets them running between Philistine grain fields, olive orchards, and stacked grain for the harvest. He basically creates a massive bonfire. And things only escalate. Creates this cycle of violence that just keeps perpetuating. It builds up to this point where the Philistines basically bring an army against Judah. And they're like, here we go. Samson is a national menace. We're bringing the army in. Judah thinks, what are we doing? Samson is burning their crops. The dude is out of control. So basically, in order to break the cycle of violence, they say, well, he hand you Samson. Like, take him. So they hand Samson over. What does he do? He breaks the bonds. He finds a jawbone of a donkey, a dead animal, again, undermining his vow. And he kills a thousand of the Philistines. Now, this is the first time after this jawbone slaughter moment that Samson mentions or turns to God. It's the first time in the story that God is even in the story or in the narrative. And Samson asks for water. Truly, he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You granted me this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised. Samson asks for water. And he basically demands that God help him and complains, right, if he doesn't. Everything Samson does up to this point is self-serving and based on his personal desires and what is right in his own eyes. Right, this is a theme of Judges. Will the people of Israel do what God has said, or will they do what is right in their own eyes? And this kind of ramps us into chapter 16. Samson goes to the capital of the Philistines in Gaza, which is a walled city, in order to see a prostitute. He allows himself to be totally surrounded in a walled city, but he breaks three, right, because he's super strong. He basically carries the city gate for 40 miles, which is like an unbelievable feat of strength. I, I looked it up. It's about 5,000 pounds, so it's like carrying a Tesla 40 miles. I did it as in, oh, just kidding. Um, yeah. Yeah, yes, not believable. Toy Tesla. But what you can see is that Samson's recklessness is deepening. Samson is so reliant on this strength that he thinks is his, that he's like, I can do anything. And this sets the stage for the story that most of us have heard. If you've ever read a children's Bible, or you've, uh, you know, been in church, grew up in church, right? The story of Samson and Delilah. This is how it reads. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we'll give, give each, you, each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound, that one could subdue you. Pretty subtle, right? Right, so you have this picture of the lords of the Philistines are coming to Delilah. These are literally the, the leaders of the Philistine nation. Samson has become such a pest and such a menace. They, all the leaders come together and they're like, we know Samson has fallen for you. We know that women are his weakness. We've seen this throughout his story. Help us, Delilah. And she knows that if she could figure out a way to turn Samson over to them, she will become a national heroine, right? Potential wealth, power, 
and influence are hers if she can find a way for Samson to be subdued. Now, I've always wondered, like, dude, Samson, like, what clue did you need to figure out this is a bad idea? Right? She asked twice for his secret. People come in and try and subdue him. Like, the third time, you're just like, whatever. And I think this is the clue, right? The recklessness of Samson, the addiction of Samson is so entrenched at this point that he literally does not know what's going on. The dude is so lost and entrenched and reckless. He's thinking, no matter what, I'm going to overcome this. So in verse 17, right, he tells her everything. Asleep on Delilah's lap, the Philistines shave his head. And in verse 20, Delilah says to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said to himself, right, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. Think of that. I will go out as these other times. I'm going to be strong still. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistine seized him, gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza, and brought him, bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. I think the key to this passage is this, right? I will go out as at other times, like I did before. Right? Samson doesn't believe at a core level that his hair, that his Nazarite vow, or God, has anything to do with his strength. Samson assumes his strength is his own. Right? He's already broken this vow so many times. Who cares about whether you have long hair or short hair? He's already, you know, broken the vow by touching a dead animal, by getting the honey out. Like, he's already cast this vow aside. Tim Keller in his commentary on or, uh, Judges says, his self-deception was not just psychological, but theological. Samson was unable to see how dependent he was on God's grace. He had come to see his strength as an unalienable right, not a gift of God's mercy. Right? The text makes it super clear. What matters most is not that his hair is long or short. What matters most, verse 20, the Lord had left him. Right? Because the Lord, not the vow, was the source of his strength. Samson goes down to prison. He works at a mill. So what's interesting is the Philistines let his hair grow back. Now, on one level, this is just like, you're thinking like, what are you doing? You know, I like think of that scene with like Gandalf, you know, and he's like, they're like, I don't, what's the animal that comes out of the crag? Someone's got to know this. Anyway, they're at the bridge, and he's like, run, you fools. And you're like, what are you guys thinking? Like, run. And with the Philistines, you're like, why would you let his hair grow back? But on another level, you know, you kind of get it, right? Because actually, if you go back to number six, what you see is that when you shave the head, it's the end of the season of consecration. So what's that signaling is that the vow is over. Right? The vow was meant to be for a definitive amount of time. They shave his head. Okay, his strength is gone. But what they didn't understand, and what Samson didn't understand, was that Samson's strength did not come from the Nazarite vow. It came from the God to whom he made the vow. And this is the fatal flaw of the Philistines' logic. It seems the Philistines, right, have finally defeated Samson. There's this great feast in the temple of their god, Dagon, right? And they have 3,000 leaders they invite to celebrate humiliation of Samson. The text says, verse 24, 16, 24, right, their hearts are merry. They're drinking wine. They're excited. In their joy, verse 25, they call out Samson, the symbol of, of Israel's strength, and they want to humiliate him. 
Then for the only the second time in the entire narrative, Samson prays. This time it's not for water. Right? The second time God is really even mentioned in Samson's life. He says this, Oh Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me once, me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my own eyes. On one level, Samson's still a little like self-centered. It's still about him and his eyes. But on another level, he finally knows that God is the source of his strength. Right? It's not about him. It's about God. Right now he knows he's blind, he's of normal strength, and he actually exercises some sense of faith that God is the one who gives him the strength he needs. Right? For his entire life, Samson has disregarded Israel's God. And he's worshipped his own preferences and desires and passions. And here the text says that Samson turns specifically to the Lord, to Yahweh. Right? He's in the house of Dagon. Right? The, the God that Israelite is worshiping along with Yahweh. And he turns to Yahweh and asks for strength. He puts his hands on the pillars. He's unsure what will happen. Right? Will God answer his prayer? The text says that Samson pushed with all his might. And you have this sense of what's going to happen. Because you know that Samson's might is small, but God's might is mighty. And the text says, And down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. And thus he killed more people when he died than when he lived. And what we see is the most fruitful, or the most faithful event in his life is this moment of his death. At last, right, he performs the role of a judge or a deliverer that was announced to his mother in chapter 13, verse 5, via an angel. Samson lives his whole life for himself, and in the end, he gives his life, seemingly in a moment of faithfulness, on behalf of actually creating a chasm between Israel and Philistines so that Israel can worship God. Now the question is, okay, so you have this sort of depressing story, one of many in Judges. You know, how do we take this example that's clearly like not meant to be the hero we're meant to emulate? How do we take this story and then figure out how it relates to our everyday life, right? As you go to work, as you raise kids, as you live with roommates, you go to school, you're trying to navigate this confusing world that we're in. Like, how do you take this story and apply it in our life? I guess two things came to mind. I, I want to highlight two. There's lots of ways we could go, but two stood out to me. The first thing I think we need to wrestle with, and I think this is especially true in our cultural moment, is how the story illustrates that someone can be obviously gifted, but have almost no character. Samson's gifted as a warrior, right? He, he kills a thousand men with a jawbone. He carried a gate, right? 40 miles, a Tesla. Like, dude is ripped. And yet, while he's empowered by God's Spirit to do crazy stuff, he has zero patience, he has no humility, and he has zero self-control. This is super important because when you flip to the New Testament, what you'll see is that Paul clearly says people can be gifted without being fruitful. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul tells us that there are gifts of the Spirit that are meant for us to do stuff, right? Teaching, serving, administrating, as evangelists. Like there's all kinds of gifts that God gives us to do things. But in Galatians 5, Paul also tells us that there are fruits of the Spirit character, patience, gentleness, self-control. And if you flip back to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, Paul tells us that it's possible to have all kinds of skills or gifts and yet lack love or fruit 
or character. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, is that if you have all these gifts, but have not love, have not fruit and character, you have nothing. And the truth is, we see this all the time in the news today, don't we? See this in the church, right? Gifted people that live these, lead these huge movements for Jesus. And yet, they have these significant character issues that come out. Right? Too often, we look at people's gifting as sort of like a self-justifying proof that they are actually producing fruit of character. But we cannot assume that the operation of the gifts leads to the formation of character. Christianity Today, if you've listened, has this Mars Hill podcast on Seattle and Mark Driscoll. If you haven't listened to it, it's worth, worth a look. One of the things it does, though, it highlights the ways in which the church, right, we as attenders and participants, podcast consumers, book readers, if we're not careful, we actually perpetuate a system that elevates gifted people with little or no attention to character. I'm saying, I'm not saying like don't read cool books written by awesome authors, don't listen to podcasts, don't do those things. I'm not saying that. You can listen to those things. But let's not neglect the faithful in our midst that we see operating in the gifts and we've seen over time the fruit and the character of their lives. Aaron and I were talking this week and we were just talking about some people in our church over the long haul that have shown just how gifted and fruit-bearing they are. We are talking about, you know, Anne will hate that I'm bringing her up. You know, but Anne, someone who... I think has been like an example and a model to us of what it looks like to faithfully pray as like a person standing on the gates for God's people. And yet she's done this over time. You can see the fruit of her life, not just her gifting. Think of Paul E. Davis, right? Who's been in this place for 60 years or more who's used his gifts in this place to lead tons of studies. And yet you look at his life and you just see the gentleness and the patience and love, the fruit, like weighing down, you know, the, the branches of the tree of his life. There are people in this body who you can literally on a weekly basis see their gifting and see their fruit and know what it looks like to follow Jesus. Let us not worship the celebrities in American culture. Let's elevate and learn from the people in our midst who we know are bearing fruit, Jesus-like fruit. If we want to be a people that are gifted but also fruitful, three things I would look at. One, Talk to these people in our midst who we know are gifted and bearing fruit. Learn from their example. Paul, pull Anne aside. Pull Paul aside. There's others in this church who follow Jesus for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years who are gifted and you can see the fruit of their life say, tell me what you did. Don't listen to a podcast about it. Because sitting in front of that person, you have decades of experience from the Spirit working in their lives, bearing fruit. Learn from them. Two, so many of us hunger to have impactful ministry. I get it. We want that sense of meaning and purpose. But this is the thing. If you want to bear fruit, I'll tell you this. The better litmus test is whether your prayer life is flourishing, not whether your ministry is. You want to be a person who bears fruit? Be a person who prays. Be a person who invites the Holy Spirit, say, God, I'm a broken mess. Heal me. Transform me. 
You can leave a thousand Bible studies, but I'll tell you this, if God is working in you, he will eventually work through you, and the fruit will be manifold more. Three, well, and maybe just back to two, you also see this in the life of Samson, right? Like prayerlessness. Dude prays twice, and you see the fruit of his life. Three, Samson also, if you look at his life, the guy has no community. He is totally doing it on his own, by his own strength. If you want to be a person who bears fruit, fruit of Jesus-like character, of love and mercy and patience, be in a community of people who ask you honest and real questions. We live in a plastic culture where we just like say to everyone we're good, but the truth is most of us aren't good all the time. Most of us have sins that leak out and affect our relationships, and we need to actually let Jesus' people into those places where where our toxic stuff is overflowing and saying, Jesus, help me here, because this is where my character is undermining my love for others. Help me. Let's look to the people in our midst who are obviously bearing fruit. Learn from them. Let's be a people who prioritize prayer over profound ministry impact. Let's be a people who elevate and invite community into our lives. If we do those three things, I think we will be a people who are more likely to value and produce fruit that is like Jesus. This is the thing, right? David Brooks, he's a New York Times columnist, um, talks about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Right? Our, our culture's really into resume virtues. It's the stuff you can brag about. It's the stuff at a cocktail party or on Instagram you can be like, I did this. Aren't I awesome? And we like that. In American culture, we like that. But this is the thing. When, you're, when you die, because guess what? Every single one of us will. When we die at our funeral, people don't say the resume virtues. They don't like, oh, he did an awesome job at these, you know, three jobs. What we talk about is how this person was an amazing, loving, kind father. We talk about how this person was compassionate, how they made space for other people in their lives how they helped and served other people. Brooks calls these eulogy virtues. In the end, character is what matters. And character is built in prayer as we invite the Holy Spirit in. Character is formed in community where God refines us through his people. Samson had neither of those. And you see the fruit it bore. The second thing I want to highlight um, is this phrase, cultural accommodation. Because what we see in the first, what we see, right, in this story in Judges is that Israel, right, doesn't even cry out to God in the midst of their accommodation with the Philistines. Every other story up to this point, Israel has at some point said, God, we're losing our feet here. Help us out. Israel is so bought, on, bought in to Philistine culture, they don't even recognize that they are worship, worshiping the Philistines' gods, that they're doing life the Philistine way. They don't even realize that they've drifted. Like Samson. Right, the Israelites are eager to marry into Philistine society as a way to move up. Tim Keller, in his judge's commentary, writes, we can't exaggerate the danger to Israel. The Israelites were on the brink of extinction. Within a couple of generations, they could have been completely assimilated in the Philistine culture. Now, that might feel like an exaggeration, but if you think about it, the church is always on the verge of extinction. Always. If we just accommodate to the culture around us, 
If we don't pass on the way of Jesus, the beliefs of Jesus, the hope of the kingdom to the next generation, the church disappears. Michael Wilcock, in this pretty profound but also, I think, hyperbolic statement says, there's no such thing as harmonious coexistence between the church and the world. For where there is no conflict, it is because the world has taken over. The church was formed to be an alternative community that witnessed to the kingdom of God. If the church loses that distinctiveness, simply it has been absorbed in the culture around it. So there should be some tension at some level between God's way of doing things and humans doing what is right in their own eyes. Sometimes when we do what's right in our own eyes, we do have a moment of alignment with the kingdom. But rarely, if you look at the text, do you see that human beings, when they do what is right in their own eyes, end up aligning very fully with God and his kingdom. I was at a conference uh, before the pandemic, and uh, Mark Laberton is the president of Fuller. He talks about this idea of the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture. And sure, this, this applies to like technology and like there's all kinds of stats on this, right? The average American watches five to six hours of TV a day. The average millennial spends four hours on his or her phone a day. If you watch the news right in the last few weeks, like Mark Zuckerberg just changed Facebook to meta, right? Because what he's trying to create is a metaverse with virtual reality and augmented reality. You think the distractions now are big? Three to five years, 10 years, the amount of distractions are going to be off the charts. And that's how values are disseminated. And while this certainly applies to technology, it also applies to many other assumptions that just sort of waft their way into the church. Right? It's easy if one's not careful to simply assume that being a Christian is just live a good life, be just. Be kind. Post about it on Instagram. But the truth is, how is that any different than the assumptions of secularism? Be a good person. Is there anything different if we assume that's what Christianity is? Right? This removes miracles. It removes a divinely inspired scripture. It remo removes the physical resurrection of Jesus. It often removes the reality of sin, the need for salvation. Think of all the things that are taken out when we just assume that all Jesus cared about is whether we lived a good life and we were good people. Or we become so absorbed, right, in national and cultural values for personal choice and personal freedom that we don't even think about what Jesus might have to say to us in a national culture where, you know, do only what is values your freedom. You read the New Testament, Jesus pushing against that all the time. Or we become totally attached to values like absolute tolerance or the rejection of exclusive truth, independent of the fact that Jesus is pushing against that as well. Or we get wrapped up in a postmodern sexual ethic or various political agendas or YOLO, you only live once. And we forget about the fact that God has created an eternal kingdom where we get to have eternal life, right? And that God is going to come and judge. The point is there are forces at work all the time in our culture that are trying to form us into its image, not Jesus's. Now, I don't mean to say, and I don't think we should fight everything in our culture. That's not the point. Like, the point is not to, like, at every corner, like, start a fight. Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But he also says in Romans 12, 1, 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. 
Don't start a fight at every corner. Live at peace as much as you can, but also don't just conform to the pattern of the world because that's what you watch on your screens or see your friends doing or watch people do at work. We are meant to be an alternative community witnessing to a kingdom that is going to be eternal. The thing is, this actually takes thought. It actually takes intentionality. It requires us to examine our heart and our mind and our motives, what we're doing in life so that we can actually follow Jesus and not just adopt the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture, not just go with the flow of what everyone else is doing. If we want to be this kind of people, I think it's going to take a little bit of work. I think we're going to have to pay attention to the inputs in our life. Right? Like, what are you digesting on a regular basis that is conforming you to the image of this world? At work, on your screens, in your podcasts you're listening to, the books you're reading? Is that you forming you into a person who is going to practice the way of Jesus? And similarly, What inputs do you have that are going to help you practice the way of Jesus? On your screens, the podcasts you're listening to, the books you're reading, the friends you're hanging out with. I think that it is naive of us to think that we do not need to pay attention to these inputs and how they shape us. I think many of us assume, as long as I read my Bible for 15 minutes in the morning, say a prayer, come to Sunday morning that I'm good, independent of all the other hours that we do throughout the week. I do not think that is going to help us conform to Jesus' kingdom. There are so many messages, so many things that are pressuring us into the image of our culture, and I think we need to pay attention to those things. I would also ask us, you know, what are the inputs, but I would also ask you to, like, imagine, spend some time thinking, Where do you feel the pressure to conform? In what environments of your life do you feel that pressure more acutely? With what people do you feel that pressure more acutely? It might give you windows into the ways that our culture and I think the enemy are going to try to attack. It's going to be through those places where you feel most vulnerable. Do you know what those places are for you? The where, the who. Do you know the inputs that are feeding your mind and your heart? Do you know what those are? I want to invite the worship team up because what I want to land on is I think this is where, this is like what Samson doesn't do. Right? What Samson doesn't do at really any point in the narrative and say, all right, God, I am a broken mess. Help me. Right? The biblical picture of repentance is that we turn back to Jesus and say, God, I need your help. Are we willing to be those kind of people? Are we willing to be that kind of people today? who look at our lives and wish that we had more fruit and say, God, I need your help. Are we, look at, are we the kind of people that look at our lives and see how, man, my life and my heart, the what I do in my life is really not that much different than anyone on my block? I think that should raise a little bit of concern in us and say, all right, God, help me. And that's a biblical picture of repentance as we turn back to Jesus and we say, please help me. Right, the biblical picture of transformation is not that you try harder. It's that you surrender and let go on a deeper level and allow the Holy Spirit to transform your heart so that your mind and your actions are shaped more and more into Jesus' image. So what I want to do as we sort of enter worship and Andrew plays some little notes on that piano just to slow down and open our hearts and our lives and our minds 
to the convicting and transforming third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that we would be better off when the Spirit came, right? Because he would come and he'd be with us always. And he would give us what we needed. He would be a lamp onto our feet. He would guide us. And he would convict us. So Holy Spirit, we just pray in this moment. You said that you would indwell us from the center of us, God. We pray that you would bring conviction. We pray that you would bring transformation and healing. Not because we tried harder. But because we just cast our bodies and our minds and our hearts at your feet. Let's help. May we bear fruit in keeping with allegiance to your kingdom. May every part of us conform to your kingdom and not the broken and sinful world that we live. Unlike Samson, may we not just with our final breath find a moment of faithfulness but in the daily contours, the daily grind, changing diapers, driving to work, trying to be in relationship, juggling school assignments. God, may we find faithfulness. May we find alignment. Speak to us. Turn the light of your presence onto our hearts. May we live in the reign of the sun. God, we are your children. We cry out, Abba, Father, come. Come into this place. And if you don't know, if maybe you've never let Jesus in on that level, I just invite you in this moment just to say to him, God, I'm lost without you. Be the food I need to survive. Be the drink that quenches my thirst and my longing. Because we know, Jesus, it is well with our soul when we are aligned with you. It is well with our soul when we are with you, when our heart and mind is aligned with you and your kingdom. Bring us life. Care for our souls in this moment, Jesus. You are the healer of the sick. You are the guider of the blind. You are the resurrector of the dead. Be that in this place today.